9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio, where we are joined this week by the gang, the original gang, the Gang of Four. Um, And uh, by that, of course, I mean from the American Enterprise Institute, Corey Shockey. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And in a undisclosed location in the American Plains someplace um, from Georgetown Law Center, Rosa Brooks. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. I'm in Wyoming, in, in the mountains. Yeah. No planes. Hard on Team Cheney, no doubt. And uh, <laughs> uh, in Washington, uh, D.C., uh, 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 our friend from the Financial Times, Ed Luce. How are you, Ed? Very good. Thank you, David. And uh, in New York City, our friend from the New York Times, David Sanger. How are you doing, David? Good, David. Good to be here. Glad, glad that uh, you all could join us. You know, I was thinking, um, as one does, that things were going pretty well for the Biden administration. Um, I mean, it's early days yet, but things are moving along. And so, I don't know, given the predilections of my neuroses, it could have to do with 5,000 years of Jewish history. I'm not exactly sure. I immediately start thinking of where is it going to go wrong? You know, like what what is the, what is the problem lurking out there? And I do see a few things that are bubbling out there on the international stage that could emerge as problems, not just in their own right, but because there aren't really a lot of good solutions for the United States in helping to address them. So I just thought I'd fire some of those off, and you guys may have some others. Uh, but let me start with the first one. Corey, you can provide your reaction as to whether you think it's going to emerge as a problem um, and or whether you think there's good solutions. Uh, and I'll go around with each of you and all of them. But let's let's start with Russia and Ukraine, where things are bubbling up again, where the Russians are moving troops um, and uh, where President uh, Biden finally had a conversation with uh, a Ukrainian president. Uh, uh, Zelensky um, a couple of days ago. Um, And I think there is some worry among Europeans uh, that this could spin out of control, uh, or at least that the Russians are going to test the West here. What What do you say, Corey? I am worried about this one, because what I notice about Vladimir Putin's Russia is that he has expertly called our bluff on a number of international issues where the United States pretends to greater interest than we are actually willing to back up. Uh, President Obama's red line in Syria, for example, um, and uh, Ukraine, we and the Europeans would like to uh, convey to the Ukrainians our support. But in fact, we have abandoned them a couple of times. We abandoned them on our security commitments through the agreements we made at the end of the Cold War, that if they gave up their nuclear weapons, we would guarantee their security. We uh, 
are posturing ourselves, not just the Biden administration, uh, the Bush administration, the, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden, not yet the Biden administration, all had a policy on Iran's nuclear weapons programs that they either reached an agreement with us or we would destroy the program. And in none of those administrations do I actually believe the president of the United States would have executed that strategy. And so what I think I notice is that Vladimir Putin, whose uh, popularity has never recovered from the social welfare reforms of, what was it, 2014? Um, Ed can correct me, David, please correct me also uh, if I have the date wrong, but when they raised the retirement age, Putin's popularity has never recovered from that. Um, and the only time there was an elevation of support was after the invasion of Ukraine. So he may have, in addition to wanting to call the West's bluff on Ukraine of pretending to greater support than we're actually willing to give them. He may also uh, want to recreate the glamour days of the invasion of Ukraine when his popularity surged for a while. And the third reason it might be of interest to the Russians to do is to distract attention from what appears to be the slow poisoning of Alexei Navalny, the exposure of him in prison to tuberculosis that may kill him. Um, so uh, I saw a good joke in a terrific article in Foreign Policy today on this of uh, you know the Russians saying that uh, Russians never had it as bad as under Barack Obama as though the United States were responsible for what's going on inside Russia. And I think that's the trick Putin's likely to try and pull off. The counterweight to it is that the West has actually invested a fair amount in improving Ukraine's ability to defend itself in the Donbass and beyond. Um, and so reminding Vladimir Putin that the only thing that could diminish his his domestic support further would be making a unsuccessful attempt at Ukraine. Uh, and I think the Ukrainians could give the Russians a real run for their money. So David, I'm interested in your reaction to the same thing. I would note with regard to Corey's comment on the uh, retirement age in Russia that today President Putin signed into law uh, um, a document saying that uh, he doesn't have a retirement age. He gets to serve until he's 83 years old uh, under under the terms of what he signed today. I, I think that's called the um, Xi Jinping uh, retirement plan, uh, which, you know, we should we're all gonna, sign we're up. We're going to install that here at Deep State Radio. At, at Deep State Radio? Good. Yeah. <laughs> You are you are moderator for life, are you, David? I like the title. Now you're talking, or or at least until he's 83, and I'll let the other panelists, you know, all put down, you know, numbers on when that would be. Um, let me add to, um, and and I agree with everything that Corey said because one always does, right? Um, but uh, I would add a few more things uh, to that. It is possible that one reason that he is staging all of this is that he has read the print is that Putin has read the pronouncements that our punishment of Russia for solar winds and Navalny, but mostly for solar winds, 
is imminent next week, two weeks, three weeks, and then it would be seen and unseen. So the seen part's gonna be some part of sanctions that probably aren't gonna really ruin his day because we've been through every form of sanctions with them so far. And the unseen presumably will be some kind of counter cyber activity or exposing uh, some information that uh, Putin doesn't want exposed, although considering that he easily survived the publication of photographs of that um, giant mansion, you know, the multi-million dollar mansion that uh, was built uh, for him, which looked a lot like Deep State Radio's coming headquarters, I think, um, uh, you know, tells you something. So he may be staging this as a warning to Biden to say, you want to mess with me over solar winds? We have some things we can do to make your life miserable. And by the way, those things don't all involve putting troops on the border. Twice, 2015, I think in 2016, Putin managed to turn off the power in different parts of Ukraine. And it was to send a message that he could easily go do that again. And so while we're thinking traditionally, and over the past few days, you've seen the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State all make calls to make very public, don't move here. There are other things that Putin could do that I think could have a significant effect on Ukraine's future and wouldn't quite trigger a NATO response or a U.S. response. So I think it is a pretty dangerous moment. Yeah, Rosa, I think David sort of, you know, echoed Corey in this, but has, has zeroed in on the key thing, which is there are certain things that Putin can do that it would it, it, it's hard to imagine the U.S. would be able to do a strong response against, but it would allow a lot of people to say that Biden was weak in the face of Putin's aggression. What, what, do, you, what do you think about that, Rosen? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and obviously, <laughs> This is actually a this is a smart move on Putin's part, right? He's he's testing while he knows that Biden's got his hands full. He's got his hands full domestically. We've got issues with China and this, Taiwan, South China Sea. Um, we've got issues with Iran. We've got issues with everybody. This is this is a terrible moment for us to be paying attention to Ukraine and what Russia is doing. Um, it's smart for him to choose this moment for that reason. It, it's also as as David said, I think. You know, in a sense, if he's about to be hit by sanctions anyway, it's sort of, you know, might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb. Maybe he's figuring, what the heck, uh, you know, <laughs> why not just really piss them off right now anyway? Um, but, but I also think that people put a little too much store in NATO Article 5, um, which is actually, if you read the language, it's pretty squishy. You know, it's, it, it pledges states to take appropriate action um, in the event of armed attacks, and it doesn't specify what that appropriate action is. Uh, and in the past, as we've seen, um, the U.S. and other states have been very reluctant to do a whole lot. They've been very reluctant to use a military response in particular for good reasons. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it's an open question in my mind, you know, exactly what uh, the U.S. would do in the event of a significant escalation. I mean, I'm sure we would say bad, bad, bad. I'm sure we'd say stop that right now. I'm sure we'd say sanctions times 10, uh, et cetera. I'm sure we'd say, you know, we're going to get you with cyber stuff and you won't even know that we got you until we got you. Um, but it's not particularly clear to me that Putin is wrong to think I can get away with this. Um, and that's not because Biden is weak. You know, that's 
that's a, I think, a perennial U.S. issue across multiple administrations, you know, that nobody wants to have an open military conflict of any sort with Russia. And Putin correctly, I think, thinks that Biden, like every other U.S. president, when push comes to shove, is going to wring his hands and say, stop it. And, and he will go exactly as far as he thinks he can. Um, and that's probably fairly far. He doesn't want a conflict either, but but I think he will. I think he will keep pushing. What do you think, Ed? I agree. He'll, he'll keep pushing. I do think it's a slightly higher risk today to do something overtly military in, in the Donbass or elsewhere um, around Ukraine than it was with Obama in 2014. I do think there's a sort of significantly higher awareness, um, you know, of what Russia is and what Putin can do. Um, amongst Democrats in particular than there was in 2014. Um, so it, it would be a greater risk. But in terms of, you know, what could screw up Biden's life, um, I would still put this, it might be more imminent, um, this sort of challenge or this testing of Biden, but I would, I would put the Taiwan situation many, many scales above um, Ukraine, Russia um, picture, um, because that's, that's China's red line and um, it, We've had three freedom of navigation uh, American naval patrols through the Taiwan Strait since Biden was inaugurated, which is a lot. It's way way higher batting average. The Chinese have been breaching um, um, Taiwanese airspace much more aggressively and much more frequently than before. And you know, it's clear from Xi Jinping's actions that. Um, uh, the the um, soft carrot approach to Taiwan has been abandoned. You know we can see that with Hong Kong, and so that's the test that would keep me up at night. That that to me is far more concerning. Um, well, that's a perfect transition because that's what I was going to go to uh, next. Uh, the Japanese Prime Minister is uh, uh, going to meet with President Biden next week. One of the central things he said he's planning to talk about is trying to, to calm down the China-Taiwan issue, as well as the East China Sea issues that are there. Um, uh, but Corey, what he says is, you know, that, uh, you know, Taiwanese sovereignty is, you know, essential to the stability of the region. The U.S. says that. And this echoes the Ukraine thing. Because... There aren't a lot of scenarios where the U.S. can stop the Chinese from being aggressive around China, Taiwan, without creating a much bigger conflagration, right? Yeah, David, that's that's absolutely true. Um, Taiwan has become the Berlin of the uh, challenge of managing a rising China. That is an outpost of democracy, of good government, of freedom that deserves our protection and is for practical purposes indefensible. Um, and during the Cold War, that actually uh, militated for a strategy of rapid escalation to the Russians not being able, the Soviets not being able to um, have a narrow tactical victory. One hugely consequential difference between the circumstance of Berlin during the Cold War and the circumstance of Taiwan now is that 
there are so many more asymmetric prices we can force China to pay for their aggression than we were able to impose on a Soviet bloc that was largely self-contained and not integrated into the global economy and whose political domestic legitimacy didn't rely on ever expanding prosperity. Um, so I'm slightly less worried about Taiwan, although I think, uh, I'm sorry, uh, because of the, our ability to impose uh, unacceptable prices on China. For example, China imports all of its oil um, through the Straits of Malacca in particular. You could get oil producing companies not to sell to China. You could get Western businesses not to invest in China, which Wall Street is on a spree on. You could get Western tech companies to actually bifurcate their supply chains and hold the Chinese government propaganda to the same standards they hold uh, Western expression. We have all sorts of ways that we could impose asymmetric prices that the Chinese, in my judgment, the Chinese leadership could not remain in power if forced to pay. And I think that's a very strong deterrent, even though I think a lot of the research that, for example, Michael Beckley, Hal Brands, Derek Scissors, Dan Blumenthal, have done, Nick Eversat, all my colleagues at AEI have done on China, suggests that we don't have a long-term challenge with China because they may already have peaked, but we do have a near-term military challenge from China. David. You know, um, I would agree with, with most of that, but I think what the Chinese are betting on here- You know, it wasn't that long ago that I remember you saying, I would agree with everything Corey everything says Corey all the time. I, I would, but it began to go to her head. So, you know, I just said- <laughs> The challenges of hegemony. Sometimes policy problems get in David's way and he can't execute his overall grand strategic concept. That's exactly right. Um, also, I'm distracted by all the flowers I'm seeing behind Corey along the way here. Um, uh, so um, I think that the, what the Chinese are betting on here is an absence of political will among the American people to get involved in a conflict that I think doesn't resonate with several generations of Americans the way it did resonate in the 1950s or early 60s, that I think more and more Americans think that we have so many different kinds of challenges with China, economic, military for sure, sphere of influence issues, um, technology issues, um, questions about uh, our vulnerabilities in space and cyberspace, that Taiwan is no longer the centerpiece of the conflict, but kind of, a, of an old Cold War sideshow to the conflict. And what worries me here is that the Chinese would come to the conclusion that um, it's entirely possible that the United States would condemn them, would do sanctions and so forth, but uh, in fact, wouldn't, put significant resources into the defense because of their fear of escalation. And I'm not sure that's wrong at this point. 
Um, you know, there was a time a number of years ago when the United States stopped Taiwan from building its own nuclear deterrent because uh, they were concerned that we wouldn't come to their defense. I've got to think that if you're sitting in Taiwan right now and you're running the, the simulation of a Chinese attack and you ask, when will the American Navy be here to go back us up? That's a really hard debate. Yeah, no kidding. Is there anything, Rosa, that a Biden administration can do in this kind of circumstance that looks strong enough, that is consequential enough? You know, not to be a broken record, because I know I've made this point previously on this podcast, um, and apologies for the background noise. That's my my roof being repaired. Um, um, but but this is I the think, Biden infrastructure plan at work <laughs> right here. Um, you know, I, I think that Biden has sent some of the wrong messages by choosing some some of the leadership of the Defense Department that's in a way that suggests that military preparation to potentially compete with China, if necessary, is not a top priority. Um, I think he could still change that if he wanted to. I don't know that he does want to, um, but I, you know, no, I, I, Biden's in a bind. I, I think, I think though that the best that Biden can sort of hope for here is that, you know, as as others have said, China's not Russia. You know, Russia doesn't have a whole lot going for it they might as well gamble. Um, China's got a lot going for it. You know, China has all kinds of ways to expand its, its sphere of power. It's got all kinds of ways to expand economically. It's, for China, it's not actually as obvious to me that they have an incentive to push really hard uh, as opposed to make a few little gestures to show that they're, you know, that they're not going to roll over for, for their domestic public. So I think with China, honestly, what I'm, I'm sort of, banking on, and I, I hope it's right to bank on this, is that the Chinese are smart enough to know that th this is not this is not existential for them. Um, they don't need to do something super provocative. They need they need to look just tough enough to keep domestic publics happy. But they don't, as Corey said, you know, they don't want to do anything that would then create risks or pain for the Chinese public. Um, so I, I actually think that in this case, it's probably more just shadow boxing, whereas in the case of Ukraine, I think probably Putin is a little bit more serious. That may be wrong. Um, and I say this, I say this from my, my station here in, in Grable, Wyoming, where we really don't know too much about geopolitics. Yeah, uh, well, right. But all our missile defenses are within miles. Yes, of house, that probably. is true. So I feel, um, I, I don't know if that makes me feel safer or more at risk. <laughs> Well, having a roof over your head is a step in the right direction or one that doesn't allow water in. Ed, let's switch then um, to yet another possibility here. Um, and and that's the pandemic. And, I, you know, I, I, I look at the U.S. and we passed 100 million vaccinations. We're probably going to pass 200 million by the 100th day. We're well on our way to getting the target of 75% of the population um, vaccinated, the, the death toll from uh, uh, COVID uh, in the U.S. Uh, hit um, 
a low that has not been seen in a year since March 2020 yesterday. Um, and yet, elsewhere in the world, France has shut down for four more weeks. Uh, India had its highest toll ever, I think 73,000 cases yesterday. There's a big story in the Washington Post today, which is really kind of terrifying, about how Brazil's failure in this regard and the emergence of uh, Brazilian variants of the disease in the Amazon um, are, are, are breaking healthcare systems in Paraguay, in Uruguay, in Peru, threatening Venezuela, threatening the United States. If there's another wave of this pandemic, if Europe and the rest of, you know, I mean, the United States is now seen and cited by international financial institutions as the locomotive that's going to pull us out of the slump. But what if the rest of the world pulls us back into the slump? And, and you know, we'll throw into that Florida, Texas, and anywhere that Christy Nome is visiting. <laughs> um, I mean, you're right. The, the, the U.S. economy in 2021 will, for the first time since 2005, be the principal locomotive of, the global, of global growth. It's been China every, every year in between 2005 and 2020. Um, and it might well continue into 2022 as the principal, if, all, if things go reasonably well, as the principal locomotive of global growth, which is an extraordinary, you know, forget, forget hard power or even soft power. This, this is a sort of demonstration effect of America that you can't improve upon um, if it continues. Um, the um, debate about America providing vaccines elsewhere um, you know, whether it be to Africa or to Europe, Latin America, you know, is, is gone even on the left in strangely sort of Trumpian directions as uh, it's seen as sort of zero sum, either we get it or, or, or they do. And obviously it has to be us. And that's for the most part, what Biden has been pursuing is we've got to get America for sound political reasons vaccinated um, before we start doing mass um, vaccine diplomacy around the world. Um, I think that America is capable of doing both at scale, and it ought to be doing both at scale very quickly. Um, the Russians um, and the Chinese are pumping vaccines into Latin America, and Latin America is, you know, our own backyard. And there are a lot, there are a lot of countries, not just Brazil, not just Venezuela, but there are a lot of countries across the region that are getting more vaccines from Russia than they are from the United States right now. That's not good if it goes on too much longer. Um, but the broader concern, and I think this was implicit in your um, question, David, is that you know even if America does start sort of um, exporting vaccines at scale and gets to herd immunity here at home. Um, that it's not going to happen quick enough to prevent um, continued slump outside of the developed world and in parts of the de developed world as well, given Europe's lack of progress. Where do you count Britain? In the developed world or in the developing? Uh, well, yeah, it might, it might be the first country to go from developed to developing. You know, there's a, there's a whole new sort of um, course it could chart there. But Britain is, you know, by uh, for one reason or another, actually ahead of America on the vaccine, um, you know, rollout, um, and so that the whole, the whole debate there, it, it you know, not being um, not being capable of supplying um, um, massive amounts globally is about whether Britons can go to Greece or Spain in a few weeks from now. That's that's 
the sort of frontier of the political debate right now. Um, so um, teaching that, explaining that, you know, that tens of billions of dollars and a, a lot of logistical support needs to go into a global vaccine rollout that America will lead is, is, is something that Biden hasn't yet really embarked upon. I'm sure Samantha Power at USAID is very much at the forefront of pushing for that. And I'm sure it will happen. Um, but even if it does happen, um, realistically speaking, we're not gonna see most of the developing world um, majority vaccinated before 2023. Um, and that is a long time. And, and that's got to be a priority for, for, for all of us. It's very rare that I have the opportunity to correct Ed Luz. Um, uh, in this case, it is courtesy of my former colleague and David Sanger's current colleague, the great Lara Jakes, uh, who has just released a story in the past few minutes about the appointment of Gail Smith, former head of USAID, uh, also a former colleague of mine and, and, and a really first-class uh, public servant, uh, to head the U.S. global vaccine rollout effort. Uh, so they've, they've gone and picked somebody who used to run USAID and put her in charge of the COVAX effort. Uh, but this is literally minutes ago. Okay, so, no, I'm behind the cap, but I'm delighted to be corrected on that. That's, that's a very, very positive sign. So remember, can they I point out that Florida. David Rothkopf had to be scrolling his Twitter feed, Rosa, while we are on the pod recording the podcast? That's no doubt about that. it. Shocking. That's not true. It occurred before the podcast, and I even you said four it. minutes. If it, I, I'm telling you, you go and look at my Twitter feed. I tweeted out congratulations to Gail before the podcast started. Um, so there's there's documentary you're, you're, worse, you're worse than my daughter, Dave. You just can't, you know, the, the, the attention deficit syndrome. Yeah, no, that's probably <laughs> on the other hand, think about who he's talking with. Uh yeah, right. So yeah. Right? well, the of us, me. Why why would he do it? But you know, I I think what's interesting about this is they realized how tone-deaf the White House sounded when they initially said, we're not gonna be shipping out any, um, uh, any vaccine ourselves, we'll be providing aid. And then two weeks ago, when they announced that they were going to loan some AstraZeneca, which of course is not yet approved in the US, to Mexico and Canada to get paid back in kind at some point. And all of this, while it was made to play to a domestic audience, while it looked like we have not vaccinated, you know, even half the population yet, um, was, you know, in such sharp contrast to their words about supporting an international effort here. And I think you've got to take the appointment of Gail Smith as a sign that they recognized that their actions were way out of sync with their words on this thing. Uh, yeah, well, but they're, they're stepping up and uh, uh, that's, that's, that's something. So, Corey, what, what is A, your reaction to this, and B, since we've got about nine minutes to go here, are there other things that you can think might knock Biden administration off its stride? I, so I, too, think the U.S. stepping forward to organize uh, global vaccinations is a wonderful thing. 
Um, I'm a little more appreciative that I don't think the U.S. is unique in thinking that its primary responsibility is to its own citizens, but very quickly expanding beyond that. I mean, if there's a case that's better than a global pandemic uh, in a, for a society as open and, and that has as many tourists and students and entrepreneurs and um, people coming in and out of the country, I can't think of a better explanation, uh, a better example of why to go global as fast as you can, even before you get to the geopolitical implications of doing it. So I think it's wonderful. Um, and I'm glad the Biden administration understood that there were consequences for looking too narrow and nationalistic in this and moving fast. Uh, other things I'm worried about. I. I perennially think we should be a lot more worried about Mexico and not because of another country coming in. Although I would point out that Mexico just bought a ton of vaccines from Sinovac, the Chinese producer, um, and uh, the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership includes Mexico. And that's one more reason the United States should join the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, um, but the advance of criminality in Mexico actually is hugely consequential for the United States. It affects our ability to control the southern border. It affects rates of immigration. It should tug at our heartstrings to see the fatality rate of journalists in Mexico. Um, and helping the Mexican government get better at governance rather than just security is one of the biggest missed opportunities. So I hope it doesn't require us starting to worry about Chinese influence in Mexico for us to be a better neighbor to one of the most important countries in the world for the United States. Yeah, although AMLO, um, Lopez Obrador, the president in Mexico, seems to have the Bolsonaro immunity to help or wisdom. Um, he has not proven to be super successful. And of course, Mexican- Mexico, like the United States, is a federal country. So we actually right. have pretty good experience of working with the regional governments in Mexico. No, no, no doubt about it. The, the COVID story there is disastrous. So Rosa, um, you, you may, if you wish, speak to uh, COVID a little bit more, but also this question, are there other things that you find concerning that might knock them off their stride? COVID, 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 and it's the economy, stupid. I mean, uh, and I think those things are deeply interconnected. Um, you know, I'm poor Joe Biden. Uh, he, we always used to say poor Barack Obama, he inherited a mess from the Bush administration. I, I think that Poor Joe Biden inherited an even bigger mess um, uh, between between COVID and foreign policy, and um, so I I think that I mean you all know this everybody in this country is so tired of things like kids not being able to go to school, um, you know so many businesses have been hit so hard by pandemic related restrictions. I think that Biden has a little bit of latitude. Um, you know I think people sort of get. Okay, things are moving. I, I, th I think people feel like things are moving fast. People are getting vaccinated. Things will get back to normal. 
If that happens, I think he's in good shape. If that happens by fall, if it doesn't happen by fall, if we start another school year with kids still at home, things like that, um, you know, and the economy is suffering because people can't go back to work, they can't reopen their bars, they can't reopen their concert venues and so on. You know, I, I think that really, really hurts him. Um, you know, I think he's he's got a little bit of a grace period right now um, where everybody gets that he didn't create the problem and he does, he is making progress addressing it, but, you know, whether for any fault of the administration or just sheer bad luck in terms of pace of vaccinations, in terms of virus variants, you know, we've had all these little minor disasters from bad weather, slowing down vaccinations to the screw up at the Baltimore factory where they mixed up the Johnson and Johnson AstraZeneca Zeneca vaccine and ruined 15 million doses. You know, that kind of thing keeps happening. Um, and sort of up to a point, I don't think anybody blames the Biden administration, but even if it's not his fault, if, if things aren't back to more or less normal by fall, I think he will get the blame. Okay, we have uh, four minutes. So two minutes for David and two minutes for Ed on other things that might intervene here. Well, I'll um, give you my, my uh, short list along the way uh, of things that could uh, come along and bite us. I think in hitting Taiwan and Ukraine, we heard, hit two of the biggest. Um, I think that we have undervalued because it's been in the middle of a pandemic, what the big lessons were from solar winds and the Chinese hack which is basically that superpowers know how to get into the core networks that make America run uh, pretty easily. And um, I don't think that people have fully absorbed because it's technologically complex, what a degree of vulnerability that creates for us. Certainly when you talk to people inside the government, the level of alarm about what they have discovered is way out of sync with what would happen if you asked the general public out here for whom it's just like, oh yeah, that must've been the January hack because you know we've moved on since then. So I would add that um, to my collection along the way. Um, I guess I would also add um, the possibility that uh, the president is unable to get through good parts of his um, infrastructure plan and it will raise anew the big question that he himself has raised, can democracies get big things done? You know, because in the at the end of the day, what's going on here right now is a question among the, um, the rest of the world that Biden has to be the experiment in showing that the US can work again internally and lead against again externally. And while the wording is all there, I, I don't think we've shown it yet. Ed. Yeah, I mean, if I'm allowed to pick up on a domestic concern um, rather than the foreign policy side, I would focus on these first two big bills um, of Biden. He's taking a very big gamble here um, uh, with how the economy responds to this sort of injection of funds. And I would argue they're necessary, but I fear that they're, they're kind of back to front. The, the stimulus, the 1.9 trillion stimulus was from an output gap point of view way overkill. Um, you know, it, the, the Obama stimulus in, in 09 was about half the output gap. It should have been twice the size. Um, this is double the output gap. It's unnecessary. Whereas the infrastructure bill, two trillion over 10 years, 
so not comparable. Basically, it's a $200 billion bill um, or, or the infrastructure um, piece of it is way too small. So I would sort of take the Larry Summers critique on the size of the stimulus, and I would take the AOC Bernie Sanders critique on the size of the infrastructure bill. That is the transformative Build Back Better raising growth, raising productivity bill that you know Biden's ultimately going to be judged on, um, and that would lift economic growth. And it's just too small. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about that. They're, they're, they're a little bit back to front. Um, and we don't know what the inflation picture is. You know, everybody's guessing. No economist knows any better than any of us whether this is going to unleash inflation or we will remain disinflationary. Um, but I, I worry that there isn't enough sort of serious long-term investment in this bill. It's too small. Um well, that's interesting, and and it's been a long time since a three trillion dollar initiative has been called too small. Um, two hundred billion, two hundred billion. Let's talk year to year. Well, it's it's two hundred. It's actually three hundred billion because it's an eight year spending cycle okay. for a two point two five billion dollar infrastructure package. But he is about to add on to that another trillion dollars in the human infrastructure part portion of the initiative, which is going to come. Uh, in three David, weeks. this raises the question, do podcasts count as infrastructure since everything else seems to? Um, Rose's roof counts as infrastructure. Yeah. Corey's background of flowers yeah, definitely. is an important part of our, our infrastructure. Um, and uh, Ed the cages is part of in which, support cages in which Ed keeps all of his pets. Uh-huh. I, I'm just a pothole. That's the, I just I've always seen myself as a pothole. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not going to go into that in too much detail, except to say, and this I'm sorry, Ed, but you know, my friend Ed once went off to a place on my advice to go and buy a new car, and 20 minutes later, he called me up. Literally, he drove the car off the lot towards Washington, didn't even get to Washington, hit a pothole and broke two of the wheels of the car. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to do so, that. I mean, potholes in you are something special. Ed. But you didn't mention it was a Rolls Royce. Uh, no, but <laughs> it was it was heartbreaking. If you could have heard if you could have heard Ed's voice. <laughs> yeah, it's all true, I'm afraid. <laughs> the new car smell was there, but the car couldn't drive. Anyway, uh, folks, uh, very interesting. I, 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 I hope they're thinking uh, in the Biden administration this way. I had a conversation this weekend with a big Democratic donor who said when he was dealing with the Obama administration and the Clinton administration, he constantly felt he had to struggle to get them up to speed. And in dealing with the Biden administration, they're always one step ahead of him. Just as he's about to say, no, you need to do this. It's like Ed and Gail Smith's appointment. They've, they've, they've done it. So, you know, so far so good. Hopefully they will be ahead of the curve on this. We'll obviously be following it. Um, uh, we've got a, one of our interactive podcasts tomorrow on COVID uh, with uh, Dr. Kavita Patel and uh, Dr. Uh, Eric Feigl-Ding, who, who are both uh, experts on COVID, and it's going to be a chance for all of our members to go and ask them questions. So 
we're continuing on with that. We've also got podcasts coming up uh, this week and next with, uh, uh, or this week and, and I, the week after with uh, Senator Chris Murphy and Representative Eric Swalwell, in addition to all the other stuff we usually do. So go to the DSR network to find out more about what we've got going on. Click on membership, support it, and then you can go and participate in all of these interactive sessions. Uh, you remember the one we did with these guys, and we're, we're going to do that again more frequently as well. Uh, in the meantime, um, take care of yourselves, everybody. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, David. Um, and stay healthy. Bye-bye.